Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Did Proust have it right? Does food, whether it's a Madeleine from an aristocratic childhood or the Velveeta mac and cheese my mom used to make, have a special significance for our memory, perhaps even our very being? In his new book, The Omnivorous Mind, Our Evolving Relationship to Food, neuroanthropologist John S. Allen takes up this question by guiding us into the inner structures of the brain, into the hippocampus and amygdala, where memories and emotions mix, and where food plays a surprising role. But Alan's book doesn't just journey into the brain. It travels back in time to the origins of modern humanity, showing us how our evolutionary past shapes our eating present. Along the way, we learn about the eating habits of Neanderthals and chimpanzees. We discover the benefits of being omnivores and even super-omnivores and we investigate why a food quality as seemingly straightforward as crispiness makes our mouths water. Here's a hint. The exoskeletons of insects might have something to do with our love of Colonel Sanders' extra crispy recipe. Please join us for a discussion of how and why we eat that begins millions of years ago and ends every time we sit down at the table with our 1,400 cc's of human brain. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to be here. I'm looking so forward uh, to talking with you about this book, The Omnivorous Mind, Our Evolving Relationship with Food, uh, which is fascinating and reader-friendly and uh, just the kind of book that fits so well in your hand while you're in the kitchen waiting for something to simmer and uh, you're suddenly finding yourself in the middle of the hypothalamus. But before I do that, um, I'd just like you to, to introduce yourself to us. Tell us a little bit about how perhaps you came to this project or, or what drew you to food, um, as well as your work work as an anthropologist and neuroscientist? Well, that's a, a big question. I'm, I'm a, I am an anthropologist, a biological anthropologist with, with some broader training. And then over the years, I've kind of drifted from a more behavioral focus to a, a neuroanatomy, but always have had a sort of an interest in food. I've had students do sort of food-related topics in the past, graduate students. And so I sort of stayed in it. And this is books the result of a kind of lifelong interest in food. I'm a very enthusiastic uh, home cook and so on. Uh, I come from a, a background. My mother was Japanese. My father was American. And my, my mother was an excellent cook. And so I think she influenced me there. She could cook Japanese food or American food equally well. And so... You know, this book's sort of the culmination of both personal and professional interests, and uh, I wanted to share it. Just like when you have a sort of excess of food, I thought I had an excess of thinking about food or a food thought, so I was happy to share it, and I hope people enjoy it, and it helps them understand their food and enjoy their food and eating more. 
Well, and it seems as though one of the problems that does come up in the book is is the problem of excess. What happens when you have a tremendous amount of food? And I'm thinking that in a few days, there are going to be children all across America dressed up as ghouls and goblins and who knows what, uh, collecting an excess of sugared candy. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do you see when you see all those kids scampering around the neighborhood gathering an excess of candy? (laughs) Well, excess is an interesting thing because uh, one thing you see is is people having experiences they're, that they're going to remember. I mean, they may all run together, but I think anyone who's gone trick-or-treating, any American child who was able to do it, um, you know, you, you do have that kind of fond recollection. But one of the things I think that's probably forgotten is that bag of – of the leftovers found a month or two later of all that candy you, you never got around to eating or you didn't want to eat. So that's not, and you know, and someone, your mother or father picks it up and tosses it. Um, and so, you know, that aspect of it is not the memorable aspect, but all that anticipation, all that anticipation of that sweet food, which is sweetness in our, clearly in our evolutionary past as a primate was something that was very attractive because it's associated with ripe fruit and so on. It isn't supposed to, it wasn't something that you were ever going to find in abundance all the time. You might find it seasonally in abundance. And so all that is is sort of working together to make the whole experience besides dressing up and uh and all that the food the dressing up uh makes it really memorable but the excess part i mean you might remember the excess consumption which of course then works against it but it's funny i i think dealing with that the that huge amount has a a part that's not nearly as memorable as all that anticipation and so what role does does anticipation play in say how we form memories about food well, anticipation, well, there are all sorts of uh, cues that go on about diet uh, that relate the, the brain and the gut and hormones that connect those sorts of things. And some of those clearly uh, uh, are act are not – it's not oh, – I shouldn't say clearly because it's very complicated and still getting worked out, but do relate to parts of the brains like the hippocampus um, that do affect memory directly. And those hippocampus also has connections, intimate connections to parts of the brain that have to do with emotions, such as the amygdala. And so we find that food is really a, a thing at the intersection of, of, of all these different systems in the brain that are related to memory. And that's not terribly surprising because one of the most important thing any animal can do is remember where they can where they got their last meal and where they or and to help them get their next one. And so memory and and food are are related and then if you take our own sort of uh enhancements, our cognitive enhancements, all that higher level stuff that's going on in in this expanded brain that that we have, you know, we we actually tend to intensify those things. And so and then even to extend it further, and which is why some of these things get quite complicated is that we make food a very social thing. We, le- we make the learning about food a social activity and where you get it, where, how you prepare it, who you eat it with. And again, it, it, it all sort of snowballs there into a very intensive memory experience. And then you take these special occasions. Thanksgiving is one that's coming up, the Halloween coming up more recently, any sort of feast. Um, all that becomes very evocative. So one of the things about your book is it it seems that it hits food from 
just about every physiological and social <laughs> angle that anyone can imagine. I mean, you, if you're interested in food, you're going to come across a passage that's going to speak directly to you. Before we move on from memory, and no doubt we'll circle back to it at some point, um, I want to ground what you've been saying in, in maybe one of the most famous food passages of all time. And so uh, there's that passage in Proust's uh, great you know, remembrance of lost time mm-hmm. in which he eats the madeleine and he has the tea and yes. everything comes back. Is food special in regard to memory? Does it have a special place? Was, was Proust right in those 8,000 pages or whatever it turned <laughs> out to be that food is sort of a key to understanding um, memory and culture? Um, you certainly show how it, it, it works. I'm just wondering, does it have a special place for us? I think it does, and I, I think it does relate back to that deep evolutionary uh, past. It's just that there are certain things that you know any animal, not just people animals, uh, need to survive, and you need to be able to get food, and you need to be able to find mates, ultimately, uh, to reproduce. So those sorts of things are, are very basic and very important. Now, over the course of primate evolution and human evolution, uh, as I said, we've elaborated on these things. But at the core there, that that connection between food and memory and food and emotion, potentially, or food and other things, is, is there uh, all over the place. And in fact, it may be it gets to be one of those things that when you start to try to, to separate them and tease out these strands, you actually are undoing the whole thing, and it, 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 it can be kind of misleading in its own way. But so I think uh, Proust was on to something there. As I discuss in the book, I, my memory of, I discuss my memory of discussing Proust. That's how powerful his insight was in the class, my kept class some 30-whatever-plus years ago. Well, if you make it through that book, that certainly is a, a memorable experience. It only went through Swan's way, I think. <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the, this idea of looking at eating as a, a deep evolutionary past. And you have this this line in your, your book, we eat with our brains. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. for somebody who doesn't naturally default to that perspective, what does it mean to begin looking at human behavior and, and food ways from that sort of vantage point? I mean, most of... Most of the foodies that I know don't begin their their food histories mm. two point five million years ago, and that's a, that's a touchstone for you. And then it's a million, you know, one point five million for the beginning of cooking. So, yeah. so what's it like to approach questions about eating from that perspective? Well, it can be. It it, it does give you a the kind of levels of appreciation. I think. I, I think if you eat something and you like it. You can think about, well, why, you can ask them the question is why? And I think that's when we get into the time depth of evolution or, or also of your cultural background. Both of these things are, are at play here. You say, why do I like this? And that's why in the first chapter I talk about crispy stuff, crispy foods and crunchy foods. And the basic, that was at me asking that question, well, why do I like potato chips so much? Or, or why, you know, do I, why is extra crispy Kentucky Fried Chicken better than, than just crispy Kentucky Fried Chicken? Or, but then conversely, why don't I like to eat this bug that's walking across my table now? And so if you start thinking about those things in depth, you actually, uh, I think you learn a little about yourself if you, if you actually consider that sort of depth of time. And you can go, don't have to go back two million years all the time. You could go back you know, 20 years or 10 years and think about, well, what, what's, what's my own history 
with this food. And then ultimately your own history, though, encompasses both your cultural history and your biological history. Well, tell us a little bit why you like those potato chips, because the the book opens with this tour de force on crispiness mm-hmm. in which you show, I think, and, and showcase your methodology. So what yes. is it about that potato chip rather than that bug? Because that bug is crispy. It is. And I do think... You know, the one is why, I mean, there's a, then this has been a broad anthropological question is why don't uh, the Western cuisines like bugs in general? I mean, that's, that's a specific question. But if we go back, uh, there are lots of other cuisines where bugs are eaten. No one loves, I don't think bugs are never the first choice, right? I mean, we, we, no human, no, no mammal with our kind of physiology could survive on bugs unless we went the anteater route and just had, you know, we're able to tap into huge quantities. And even then our digestive systems aren't really set up for all that, that hard exoskeleton of the bug. So, I mean, so that's one issue there, but if we go back and think, well, what is good, what's out there that besides bugs and bugs are, are out there, that's for sure. That's crispy. And one thing would be, uh, lots of sort of crispy plant materials, leaves, stalks, and so on. And some of some primates, like a big gorilla and some kinds of monkeys, that's what they kind of make their living on. But our kind don't. We'd rather eat uh, rice ripe fruits that are sweet and softer. But we can, our kind, let's say, can survive on, can get something out of those. So again, we get to this idea that these crispy foods are fallback foods. So maybe bugs, maybe crispy stalks and so on, they don't have the things that we like most. They don't have the taste, the sweet taste or so and so on. They don't have that kind of fatty thing, which also seems to be very appealing uh, to us. But, you know, they fill you up, they get you something, and maybe the crispiness is something that makes them more attractive, right? And when we say that they're attractive, for some reason that means that whoever found those things would be willing to eat them as opposed to their primary. So fallback foods, crispiness may be part of that. Now, what we have today, of course, and this comes in with cooking, is the ability to create crispy in substances that never had it. So uh, so that you could get a crust on meat. You can, you can soften things too, like tubers, but you can also crisp them up and caramelization on the surface is something that creates sweetness, which is something we're already ready for, or the fatty feel. And so a potato chip, for example, then becomes sort of just a, a vehicle for carrying fattiness, that oily flavor, you know, it, that's part of it, having been deep fried, or saltiness, which we also have a sort of baseline appeal for as well. So crispy, if it was something that maybe was once originally not a primary thing, combined though now today with an ex, with these primary preferences and available in excess, that becomes sort of the, the, for many people, a kind of ultimate food. Yes, you uh, attribute perhaps one of the origins of the book that you wrote to Mario Batale. Uh-huh. Yeah, I said, I said, you know, that's one, one that's where I originally started thinking about because I, and I've read this not just from his stuff, but he says something about, you know, you put crispy in a menu title or you have the server sit there in a fancier restaurant who's rattling off descriptions of things and you throw the word crispy in or Kentucky Fried Chicken up there on the the, the sign above the uh, the order counter that they know crispy moves food. And this, of course, is, isn't a shock, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's a word that can work um, in a menu and it can work in other settings. And I also talk about how 
crispy foods are often sort of gateway foods for transferring foods from culture to culture. I mean, we in the U.S. we eat Japanese food such as uh, sushi, but some of the earlier foods that people that aren't don't want to go right to the soft raw fish be uh, a tonkatsu which is a deep fried pork cutlet or a tempura which would be you know fried vegetables in a batter now so that would be sort of the gateway food to, to sushi but what's interesting is that both of those treatments of food are themselves cultural borrowings into japan and so we see that crispy foods such as chips and and so on um are something that, that crosses cultural boundaries as well and, and in the opening it, it's so fascinating because in, in fact, I, I want to take a shot at kind of describing what it would be like to be an anthropologist and a neuroscientist, because it seems as uh-huh. though you take this transcultural phenomenon like crispiness uh, that's transported itself around the globe, and that becomes a kind of problem. And then the way you begin solving it is just fascinating. So maybe there's this primary source of food and sweetness. Maybe that's it. Maybe there are these fallback foods in insects uh, or in you know vegetables, and then maybe cooking comes along and a allows you to do more of that and, and you can wet it yeah. to things like fats and then you go into well maybe it's onomatopoeia maybe the very word crispy yeah. can trigger certain sorts of associations of eating mm. it and you know you you go into the mri studies where mm. imagining and uh and doing a particular motor skill have some overlaps though not yes. always and yeah. then suddenly you talk about habituation and how people seek variety and so the fact that this is you know going off in your ear as well as your mouth might be part of its appeal. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. I was, you know, I, I was watching some, uh, this was, you know, some football game or something, and I had a big bowl of popcorn. And by the time I crunched my way through it, all that was left was the sound in, in terms of my sensory, you know, uh, perception of it. I, I'd stopped tasting corn or salt or whatever, but the crunchiness was keeping me going. <laughs> So, I mean, in some ways, you know, that's another advantage. If you want to think of uh, the, the crispy foods competing with other foods, that's another advantage for me to, to, to keep on with it. Well, so do you think it, is, it's pleasure, it's survival? Um, you mm. have this very interesting phrase that I had not come across before in all my food reading called a mm. foodgasm. Yeah, I've seen that. And so I kind of looked into that. Yeah. So um, I have to ask on behalf of listeners now, what's a foodgasm? Well, foodgasm, which, you know, I've seen it used this way. And I think this is, is, is when you eat something, uh, you have a very strong reaction to it. And, and so that people have termed that kind of, oh, wow, that's so great. You know, initial reaction to eating something, they call that a foodgasm. Now, of course, that's a somewhat right there. It's the opposite of, of, uh, an orgasm because orgasm comes at the end, but the foodgasm is is the beginning, and so all this tension of anticipation. I think that's a really important thing. It's it's you're not going to have the foodgasm uh, on the hundredth bite of popcorn, no matter how good it is, and or it, probably if you're already sated anyway, you're not going to have a a foodgasm in that way. Maybe it's similar to an orgasm, but that anticipation is really critical. Um, to that. And some of the taste part of the orbital frontal cortex, interestingly enough, uh, where a lot of sort of, uh, of taste integration in the brain takes place is also an area where uh, that's activated during orgasm. So this sort of sated re- tension release 
thing, there may be some neurological overlap between a foodgasm and an orgasm. So let me just ask a very naive question. Is the brain just a little bit messy? You know, it can't separate sex from food. It can't separate what it's supposed to remember from what it smells. And it just kind of gets all in a jumble. Yes, I think, I think, you know, neuroscientists, when they investigate pathways, um, or they investigate activations, you know, those blobs that you see, at, you know, that say, oh, look at this part of the brain lit up during this task. You know, you want the, the whole point, a good experiment simplifies all the variables, simplifies everything so you can see your effect and where you're looking at it. But of course, when you have that sort of functional task in the brain, you're, the whole part of the whole brain's lighting up, all part, different parts are doing something. That's why you have to think up tasks that show the contrast between two different states, and then you can statistically manipulate them and say, oh, we've, we've seen the difference between these two states, and that's the activation. But there's a lot of overlap. There are a lot of different networks that are developed, you know, that are, are de- developed as your, both as some of them, maybe networks that are, are more powerful, develop when you're younger, over the course of development as you're growing. Um, but these networks can be retrained in adulthood. It's harder and harder as you get older. And you're certainly creating new ones as you go older. I mean, um, you know, I've done research on eight brain aging. And, you know, all these studies about sort of staving off uh, dementia uh, have to do with people keeping their brains active. And that indicates, again, there's a there's a some sort of plasticity going on that you can, it is effective to some extent. And some of this sort of, and one thing I bring in sort of towards the end of the book is uh, I'd like to see that if, if we say that, and, you know, just reading or that kind of intellectual activity is good for dementia or maintaining social relationships, the social life and active social life is good for staving off that sort of brain decay, that I, I would suspect that act, that food preparation, uh, having responsibility for what you eat yourself is a kind of relationship that could also be, should be encouraged in the aging and, and, and that in itself is maybe one of those ways that we keep our brain uh, activity going longer. Well, I have a mother that both consumes fish oil because she thinks it's going to help her memory and loves to cook. So this is a good recommendation go. for her. Yeah. Well, you do – speaking of, of the messiness of the brain, there's there's a large portion of the book that deals with categorizing food and the importance mm. of making those distinctions. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works and why it's so important? Well, categories – and I, and I, I – I bring this up. It, it categories when you label something, it it's a way that gets your way. It's a it's a shorthand way for your brain to access that. And so you know you can have knowledge, implicit knowledge about all sorts of things, um, and that implicit knowledge is really important in in lots of different ways that you don't think about. But to make that implicit the Im- implicit explicit gives you a way to to grab a handle. And the one thing I, you know, I don't I I sort of wonder about or speculate about is that when you get these sort of when the government various governments all over the world do this they they try to they try to recommend a diet i mean they don't call it but they don't want to call it a diet because they said this is the government diet everyone should eat everything this way because all the neuro, nutritional scientists say this is this is what we should be eating and of course those nutri- what's irritating to people is those change over time but so and then they they go okay we're not going to but they don't want to call it a diet cuz diets give it a name and a diet almost by definition 
is is sort of labeling this change. When we say a diet, we mean a change. We're changing from however we want to eat, which is implicit, and it was learned as you grew up, to something different to change the way you are. And so they don't want to call it a diet, so they, they make a picture, right? A food pyramid or a, a pagoda in, in some you know, Asian countries or a a pie chart or, you know, or a plate. They actually, it's a plate. It's never pie. There's never a pie part in the recommended diet. And, or um, in Japan, a top, a spinning top. So all these things are sort of kind of, I think, trying to kind of run around this labeling, this this explicit labeling of the diet. Now, on the other hand, if you become a vegan, and you come from a different band that you you think there's some enlightenment there. I think these diets um, that are you do want to label it because in, in effect you are are advertising both to yourself and to others. You know, I've found a new way, and so you you want to say I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a uh, I'm on this diet or that diet, even if it's just a weight loss diet. And so those are are I call something I say this is enlightenment and I mean it, it really is it's it's lighting a bulb in your brain that puts food um, into the spotlight in the way that in the past and our evolutionary past just never wasn't was an option right in the past you, you ate what was available perhaps or you ate the way your people ate or the way your family ate and there was no putting a name on it necessarily if you never had to and. What, when you you turn to diets, uh, you draw a well. I think you give us one of the best answers as to why diets are so hard to follow, even when um, they're self chosen. When you much less government imposed, right? When you do have a moment of enlightenment, you think I'm, I'm going to go vegan or I'm going to go pescatarian mm-hmm. or whatever it turns yeah. out to be, and it has to do with with uh, this notion you have of a, an implicit theory of food that each of us mm-hmm. carries around, and you liken it to a language. Yeah, I think, and I, I think that as you're growing, and, and, and as I don't, I think, and again, in a way, this is a, just an example of that giving a name to something. I think we're all sort of aware of that, right? Oh, I eat the way I grew up. Um, you know, how else would you eat? I mean, that's sort of commonsensical. But by saying this is your theory of food is to sort of give you an, you know, opens your eyes to the fact that yes, it isn't your way you eat has a developmental trajectory. Um, it's very powerful in your brain, you know, in your mind, in terms of how your mind in, or is structured, because it, it was it was being laid down by by people who with whom you have a very significant relationship, your family usually, um, and all these things are very similar to language. Now step back and say, okay, I want to learn a new language. Let me kill that. Um, that's not the easiest thing in the world, right? And so we all can understand, especially when you're older, um, that, you know, it's it's very hard to change the way you, t- you know, the language you speak. It's not impossible. Some people will do it more easily than others. Some people will do it repeatedly. Um, but it's it's not an easy thing. And it, it, it is something that's very much part of your your cognitive being. Yes, I just imagine what it would be like... If if it was understood, you know, the, the diet gurus come out and they say, do this or try that, that each time you are being asked that, it's not that different from being asked to learn French if you don't speak it or Japanese if you don't speak it, uh, as opposed to, you know, there seems to be this kind of default, well, if I just will it, it will change. Yes. Um, I think- <coughs> Excuse me, go ahead. Oh, I, I think that... 
language um, is a wonderful way to, to bring out what you talk about when you talk about food as a biocultural phenomenon. So I'm going to get it wrong, but I just want to see if I, I can articulate it. Um, and I hope you'll correct me when mm-hmm. I get it wrong. Oh. But it's that there's this sort of innate biological potential, um, a language instinct to acquire a language, but which particular language you acquire is going to depend on your cultural circumstances. And you're making a similar claim for food that, you know, human beings yeah. need to eat. There are certain dispositions that are predetermined by your biology. Um, but then culture grafts that and shapes it. And uh, it suddenly starts to feel pretty rigid. Yes. And how it grabs it. I mean, and then it, you know, then the brain is ready to be trained in, in a way. It's like, you know, we, there's lots of debates about how, you know, the core of language and, and things like universal grammar, especially this picked up quite a bit lately. But nonetheless, I think it's quite clear that the brain itself is, is very adept at learning language, spoken language. Um, and I think it's very adept as well at, at, at developing a theory of food. Um, I think there'd be a lot of, of good, you know, sort of selectionist reasons for that. You know, it's important to have food, um, just like it's important to be able to talk. Now, beyond that, uh, I think we get back to the sort of messy brain. This is going to involve a lot of different networks. And I'm not sure at this point we really understand uh, in a neurological way how those those networks are are modified and laid down. I suspect that they they are they're there. Um, and there are some biases in creating certain types of networks, like for language. But other than that, it isn't necessarily a hard. You know, you know it's funny. It's it's with the whole biocultural is to get away from saying, oh, it's hardwired or it's co- or softwired or it's hardware or software. Um, you know, it, it's a combination of the two, and it's really it best to try try to look at it that way at all times instead of getting kind of when we get ultimately nature nurture sort of dichotomies aren't that useful I think one of the, the virtues of your book is that I never feel like you're oversimplifying problems. So when you take something like the senses and eating and what it is to have a central experience of eating, uh, you begin with you know the question of why it is that the French might be more inclined to do so. And suddenly you're talking about Napoleon. And then in the next moment, you're talking about what's going on in the center of our brain and our you know chemoreceptors. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you... I would love to know what kinds of of studies that you feel you'd like to see in the future. You've you've kind of give this vast survey of all these fascinating studies in the book, um, and you just said this provocative thing that we don't quite perhaps understand it fully. So, if you had you know a huge grant that you could bestow for a project, what would you want to test? What would you want to find out next? Well, I mean, it, it, people are starting to do this, although it's it's becoming. Uh, I mean, it's just starting to take out. Is some of this sort of cult? I mean, the cultural effects of, of functional brain on uh, you know cultural effects on brain function in terms of just these sort you, uh, sort of pathways we've been talking about. I mean, that's a that's a very basic question, really, if you're trying to answer these these higher level issues. But it's sort of you need to have that first, at least as a starting point. You know, and we're starting. You know, there's. It, it's it's done a little bit, but you have to keep in mind as we're still very early in functional imaging and so on. And a lot of that work was was dedicated to getting rid of variation, getting rid of individual variation because you wanted to get statistical power. And you, you got to 
do things that way or cultural variation. You have to get rid of some of that variation to try to, to get the signal through the noise. But to some extent, the noise that's, that has to do with culture or, or your different uh, upbringings and so on, that's, that's where the interesting stuff starts to come in. So you see some of that um, variability people looking at, say, in um, – Various, obviously, lots of different psychiatric conditions and so on. Um, so people do do that, but you know, we need to to get a bigger picture on on what uh, the variation is in in quote normal brain function. Um, beyond that, I, you know, at a at a even more cultural level, it'd be nice to to really get more in depth about feelings of food. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about that sort of in other projects is how people feel about food. How do they deal with their feelings? Because, you know, feelings is, is a, an area that is also just sort of starting to get more grounded and, and it's something that works at an implicit level. So how we feel about things is obviously a, a influences how we think about things. And so how do you feel about food and, and so on? So, you know, that's sort of a quick answer to that. Well, I'm sure that, that, that there are all sorts of ways you could go. Um, I just want to circle back to, to some of the, the studies that you're talking about. So, for example, you, you bring up studies that, it, that happen in MRI machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things you point out is just a very practical thing that you can't really have people doing all sorts of movements in there. And yeah. that's one of the things that we want to study. Um, but you also get your evidence from from the fossil record, mm. and it's not every food book that will talk about the shape of the brain pan and the size of the brain. You know, fourteen hundred cc's of brain really changes yeah. the way you eat. How does it change the way you eat? Well, the bottom line in all these sort of, of old neurological, you know, evolutionary uh, issues is that. You know uh, that neurological tissue is 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 what we could say is expensive. It takes a lot of energy to run, and so there's plenty of evidence. There's an interesting study has you know you think about how the how things you learn from uh, all sorts of weird stuff. Here's a, there's a someone did a fruit fly study, and people have been raising fruit flies for hundreds of generations in labs, and they actually compared over you know fruit fly colony they've been going for decades and they looked at them and they're actually finding that their uh, eyes are getting smaller more or less and eyes are are neurologic you know if you want to see your brain look in look in the mirror and look in your eyes because those have direct connection to the brain as much direct as anything that's brought to the surface and they don't you know they're not being using their vision as much haven't been for hundreds of generations to find their food they haven't had to so there's actually been a sort of a loss of of investment in that expensive tissue, whatever else, something else is going on there, but um, they've quit invest, investing so much in expensive neurological tissue. And so people have looked at this in primates and lots of other animals, and you see, ultimately, we have to find a way to feed a big brain. And we have brains that are three times as large, more or less, than the great apes, who are our closest relatives. And most of this increase is only ha- – we've been separate from as a as a evolutionary lineage from the apes for five or six million years. But it's only been in the last couple million years that you find fossils that where they start to get a bigger brain. And so people try to link that to tools and something's happening also with diet perhaps because the teeth are also getting very generalized. Uh, they're not nothing specialized there in our teeth. Um, that may have to do with um, feeding that brain 
or having a brain that allows you to exploit new food sources. It's a little bit hard to to figure out, you know, there's obviously a feedback where it starts. It's hard to say. Now, people have said cooking may have been an important thing. That would be an interesting thing is to really find out, figure out, you know, what's the evidence for cooking that would really be satisfying. And when we go back that far, you know, it's if it's more recent and you can find a living floor and it's an obvious fire hearth, archaeologists are good at saying, OK, that's that was a fire there and that fire was made by people. Now, when you go back a million years, uh, you don't find such nice, neat places. They weren't, you don't find nice cave sites where you could see where the fire was and so on. And so it does get a little harder. And that would be nice to be able to, to resolve when maybe cooking came into the, the picture. I mean, but we do see that our relatives get out of Africa and they're going to a lot of different climates and some of them will seem pretty cold. And, you know, the use of fire could start with thawing food. If you were somewhere where the food had, you know, um, something had died and frozen, you want to get at it. Um, but so that's a interesting issue. But it all comes down to the brain size thing comes down to feeding and growing a big, energetically expensive brain. Well, I think in that answer, you've taken us close to your title, and I just want to make sure that we do justice to the book by doing the title, um, because you started to talk about uh, you know our omnivorous nature, mm-hmm. and the title is The Omnivorous Mind. Mm-hmm. So if somebody naively asked, John, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what does it mean? Well, I'd say, again, that people are, and I call, I actually wind up calling people super omnivores because it isn't just about the fact that we eat lots of different things, which is true as a species. If you look, you know, across what people eat, they really do eat a remarkable variety of, of foodstuffs. And if we were to go back pre-agriculturally, uh, that still holds true. Agriculture is actually kind of, and especially within cultures, has, has narrowed probably the foodstuffs that foods that we've eaten uh, that people have relied on. And you nicely point out some near ancestors of ours that specialized and even developed. Oops, there goes the phone. (laughs) That'll get edited out. It's all right. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. Nope, that's no problem. I'm just going to mark down the time so that the producers have a a guess. So uh, I just wanted to jump in and say that you point out um, some near ancestors of ours who developed different sorts of jaws uh, Mm -hmm. that didn't specialize and didn't seem to to do as well as a result of that. Well, yeah, or they did. They over-specialized. is yeah, the robust Australopithecines. uh, You know, they they started, they're, they come off on our lineage. I mean, they're, more closely related to us, almost without doubt, than, than any of us, uh, them are related to other apes. They're bipedal. They're walking along the two. They're very good bipeds. In fact, they could walk by on two legs. You know, I look out, look out your window and imagine one walking by on two legs. And it, you wouldn't sit there and at, you know, wouldn't notice that there was like a, a chimpanzee or a gorilla sort of, you know, with a tottering walk. It would be a very good bipedal walk. Now you get to their heads. And they call them robust. They're not very large body, but their jaws are enormous. Their jaws and teeth are enormous. And almost the inc- – really what – it's not the, all the teeth are. It's the back teeth, the molars. Um, the front teeth are extremely small. So here we – and this is something that's evolved as we have evolved from something that would look very ape-like, you know, fairly large teeth, big canine, sort of generalized teeth to really tiny front teeth and huge molars. 
And so they go one way and we go our way and you can look in your mouth and you, we have small teeth. We have, at this point, we have small jaws. We've had a lot of reduction, but we don't have that. Our mouth doesn't have that kind of specialization, our teeth. And so these guys stayed in Africa. They evolved. They had a nice run there for a million years or two million years or so. There's different versions of them. Um, but they clearly, uh, were working on, you know, uh, uh, you know, foods. For, used to say that they thought they were concentrating on seeds, but probably grasses as well. And it just was a, a direction that allowed them, you know, they could probably still eat fruit, some expansion, but it wasn't it wasn't the true omnivory that we went into our lineage. And so they go extinct. Maybe we helped them along because one thing that's clear that happens uh, for us is an increased reliance on meat. Now, how much it is or, or how little is debated, but we clearly start taking advantage of our ability to kill and eat and butcher, maybe more importantly, animals. And we butcher animals, our ancestors anyway, didn't use their teeth to butcher them. They were using stone tools. So chimpanzees hunt fairly, you know, there's, they, they hunt, they like to hunt, they like meat, but their problem is that without tools to butcher, and they can kill plenty of smaller things, and they cooperatively hunt, and they'll share meat. They do. They have a lot of meat-related behavior, but and they have to start ripping it apart with their teeth and their hands. And you know, after you've eaten, after they've eaten the, uh, uh, you know, the soft stuff, the brains and the various organs, they don't do a very good job on the the, the muscle. So it, our advantage is we start again to take it uh, to expand our diet. We develop probably technological ways to, to, take, to eat more of an animal. Um, so not only to kill them and larger ones more efficiently, but to actually take advantage of, of that. And cooking is then one idea that that would make that protein more available. So is, does that what you mean when you say we go from omnivorous to super omnivorous? What's that, that leap there? I'm not imagining people eating with capes and, you know, spandex outfits. Yeah. No, I, I, that's only that's the beginning of omnivor of kind of a true omnivory for our kind. But I say the super omnivory comes in uh, when we introduce a strong cultural component, and by that I mean it becomes important. It's clear when you look at what people do, what you don't eat is as important as what you do eat, and it became what people eat became very t- closely tied to cultural identity. So in, in many places, you know, you can have two ethnic groups side by side and they'll define each other's as much as anything by all oh, we eat this stuff those guys over there you know they're crazy they eat that even though it's all edible and anybody could could you know uh, survive on it but be, for social identity and social cohesion food becomes a, a player there and that's what really contributes to the the super omnivory that and the fact that going back to the 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 animals uh we did start to get an ability to kill really big things too, uh, you know, at some point and much more than anybody could ever, uh, any, any person or family, small family could ever eat in a, in a setting. So sharing, feasting, these sorts of, so again, social relationships around food, uh, could be very beneficial and also, you know, very binding. And so, uh, that's the beginning of super omnivory, that kind of thing. 
And again, I would say that's a virtue of the book is that I always feel as though the, the biological and the cultural, you're keeping them in a happy and productive tension as, as you move forward. Another example of that, that, that you just glanced upon is disgust. Mm. And you give a nice account of how that's, that's not just a cultural phenomenon, but there, it does indeed include a physical gut somatic response to, to certain sorts of actions and foods and even words that are triggered. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I mean, people who study, I mean, disgust is a, is a, is something we, we, we all, anybody could feel it about a food item that is, is either, uh, you know, it's, it, it may be rotten, you know, all these sort or, or, you know, not as dead as you'd like it to be, or, you know, you know, any, any upbringing, you're going to have some food items that you're going to recoil from. Um, and you have that reaction, you know, but without thinking it's just, it's a, it's a very disgust sort of base action. And then a lot of psychologists looking at how this sort of feeling gets transferred then to ideas, at least in us. And then this is part of, again, this cognitive elaboration. We have ideas that are disgusting, disgusting or scenarios or, or thoughts or, or possibilities. And those are seen as disgusting now. But it's probably at some basic level all, all working off the same neurological uh, equipment. And so, you know, food, um, maybe that's one reason the, the food and cultural identity becomes quite powerful because it's – it. And, you know, others do that um, while we do this. And if we bring food into that sort of equation of identity, then we're tapping something really basic. Well, let's talk about a a particular uh, Western and uh, also Northern European Mm -hmm. thing that that we do, which you have a a very interesting take on, which is the problem of obesity. Mm. Um, And you have a, a nice account of the condition that's perhaps contributing to that. And I just wonder if you'd share that with us. Um, well, we live in this sort of world of, of, of food excess, right? And, and, and everything that we've, we've done in the past um, has been sort of, if, if there is a, a harder aspect to all this, it's, it's, it's for dealing with food that isn't so excessively available. And so when we get into this environment of, and it isn't even, it's a, it's a world, it's a, it's, you know, this is the same thing sort of happens. This obesity epidemic really isn't an epidemic in the sense that, you know, it's, it's going to hit developing countries and so on because cheap, easily accessible food is something that does become available with a relatively low level of development and, and becomes accessible to, to people at all socioeconomic levels. So this is a major problem, but it's clear that, that we're not really our bodies and our minds as that relate to body. And in, in a sense, we, if we want to say, don't separate biological and cultural, you know, see them as entwined, then we really need to see body and mind also more so as, as, as co-players. And so we get this idea, this what which people relate to a lot of other different areas, but you know we really aren't adapted for this environment, and it is an environment that it is our bodies telling us that you know sweet is good and fatty is good, um, but obviously when it's too much available, then then we don't we're not it isn't so good. If you want to live a long time, it isn't that terrible. This is one of the things about obesity. You can an excess of food will, will get you grown up. It'll get you to reproductive age. It'll, it'll get you through a, quite a chunk of a 
of a, what we might, we think of as a normal lifespan. But if you want to live better and longer, it, it does. There's a big cost there. Well, John. It's been great to hear about the book. I can't recommend it enough. Well, um, thank you very much for saying that. I'm very excited to hear where you might be going next. Well, I'd like to think, I mean, I always think about food, and I'd love to be in a position to, to write more about food. If, if enough people read this book, I suppose I, I would be. Um, as a late time, I've been thinking a lot more about feelings, and in our, again, sort of in an everyday life, what, you know, what is underlying these complex sort of uh of feelings feelings about home and place in particular um and so you know i'm trying to trying to relate you know, these sort of global things about our everyday lives uh to our both to our past and to our our histories and so that's sort of sort of what i i'm doing these days hmm. is there some trigger then, in the way that that crispy got you going or mario batali got you going on this book that that's getting you to think in this direction um i'm not sure i mean that's that's a good that's a good question something triggered it and i'm i i do not know where the feeling of of feel, thinking about feelings came from in this this case <laughs> So. Well, how does an anthropologist and neuroscientist think about feelings? What's a feeling for you? You know, for me, who's somebody in the literary world, it's, you know, something inflected with aesthetics and emotionality. What, what's a feeling from your disciplinary perspective? Well, the feeling is, and I'm just following here, I'm following from my, I work with Antonio and Hannah Damasio at University of Southern California and I, for several years, and they really promoted Antonio very much the, the idea of, of this sort of mind-brain connection. And so to some extent, the most basic thing is that connecting, um, that connection that, that is, is in, in many, sometimes explicit. It relates, you know, the, the, the sort of, the way it explodes into your conscious cognition is through emotion. And you say you become aware of this emotion or that emotion and that sort of feelings writ large. But what goes on in terms of, your everyday life and maintaining a certain balance in your life, either behaviorally or physically, are all these other feelings that are going on. And to some extent, the feeling of, of well-being is almost by definition a non-problem. And yet it, it, it's governing what we're doing now or, you know, if you're sort of, uh, you know, feeling okay about things or feeling, you know, it's not an issue, but it's, it's there maintaining your, your balance in life. And so I think, you know, food does relate to that because, you know, when everything's fine and every food is there um, and it's okay and all and so on, you don't really necessarily think about it. It's it's all part of of moving along through life. So yes, your book ends with the the idea that you know the theories of food we have are these implicit cognitive. Theories mm-hmm. that we've used, so it sounds also like we have an implicit kind of state of well-being that we're not aware of, but that guides our behavior. Exactly, and I think, it, but but then in a sort of you know know thyself, which is I think the sort of underlying all of anthropology. If, if you know we think of humans as a, a thing worth studying and knowing, um, you know I, I think you can do better by being aware of it, being aware of food, uh, theory of food, where your food world, how it develops and where it comes from. I mean, almost by definition, I have to believe that that should help you enjoy uh, your food, enjoy your eating life. I mean, it's sort of my whole, what I've done all my life is understanding where we came from 
as a species helps me understand where we are today. And so hopefully understanding where and how you eat today either will make you a better eater for whatever it is you think of as being better or at least to enjoy what you're doing with food more than you did in the past. Well, your book is certainly a contribution to doing that. John, thank you so much for talking with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. My name is Eric LeMay for the New Books Network, and you've been listening to an interview with neuroanthropologist John S. Allen, author of The Omnivorous Mind, Our Evolving Relationship to Food.